this episode of the Ownership Economy, we speak with Stacy Warden, the CEO of the Algorand Foundation. Stacy previously ran the Center for Financial Markets at the Milken Institute, and before that worked as an executive at JP Morgan and NASDAQ. She started her career as a development economist at the United States Department of the Treasury. In the episode, we discuss how Algorand works, its unique value proposition, and some real-world applications of this blockchain. We hope you enjoy the episode. Stacy, thanks for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. So we like to start these out by hearing a little bit about your background, your origin story. Tell us, tell us kind of, you know, how your career began and um, how you got to where you are today. Uh, well, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to work with a famous development economist named Jeffrey Sachs when I was in my 20s. And I worked for him for uh, seven years. And he had... Um, he was sort of the author of the breaking the back of hyperinflation in Latin America in the 80s. And then he was the sort of the, the guy behind something called shock therapy, which was a way to get the communist transition economies into a more free market uh, way of thinking. And this is Poland, former Soviet Union. And so it was a kind of a it was a. a a kind of a heady time to be involved in those in those uh, uh, things as a young uh, person, and it and I fell in love with uh, development economics as a result. And then my career kind of progressed, you know, away away from that. I was I went to um, he's a professor at Harvard, and I went to grad school at Harvard, and all that kind of thing. So that was a little bit sort of my twenties. But then I went to and I've done now stints in the in the public sector. I worked for the U.S. Treasury Department in the private sector. I've been I was with uh, J.P. Morgan for uh, eight years. I was with the NASDAQ for a couple of years. I was, I worked for Mike Milken at a think tank at a nonprofit for about eight years as well. And they've all been, um, you know, my parents didn't believe this always at the time, but they've all been kind of connected uh, in some way. And it's been around, you know, access to capital, this idea that well-functioning capital markets can be a very important engine for growth in an economy. And it's been about kind of financial inclusion in various different uh, guises, I would say, from the sovereign level down to the high, uh, household level. They've always been, kind of, this has been sort of a theme that's carried through uh, my career, I would say. Very interesting. I uh, I don't want to derail this, but it'd be interesting at some point, maybe on a future podcast to go into whether or not shock therapy actually worked um, or if we're dealing with the re kind of the repercussions of it today. But I but, think it's uh, probably a mixed bag, uh, a mixed bag for sure. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that you worked in the public sector. Um, you started out um, early in your career at Treasury, um, where there's this kind of interesting program that is almost a precursor to the regenerative finance community or kind of the climate tech community that is now kind of intersecting with the crypto community, um, specifically this U.S. Tropical Forest Conservation Act, which essentially is a debt for nature swap, which when I was reading about kind of the background, um, on your career, I found very interesting because I hadn't heard a lot about these programs. Then, when I dug into it, uh, was was pretty surprised how much how how much money is actually being forgiven from a from a debt perspective. So maybe you could just walk us through this mechanism because I thought, given how much we focus on regenerative finance on this podcast, it might be interesting for the listeners. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, when I was it was at the turn of the century. I guess <laughs> it's funny to to say that, but turn of the century when I was at Treasury, and it was a very heady time to be uh, in international finance. It was during um, something called Jubilee 2000, which was a, it led by the UK actually, a broad-based uh, effort to relieve the debt of developing, it was a debt forgiveness, a developing country debt forgiveness program. And, um, and in the United States, it was called the Highly Indebted Poor Countries, the HIPIC initiative, where we would, in various guises, they would uh, put together poverty reduction strategies and we would forgive in, in concert, uh, some, the G7 countries would, get, it would forgive debt in concert to these, to these uh, countries. And one piece of that that wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly related, but it was kind of caught up in all of that was something called the Tropical Forest Conservation Act. And this was uh, a, a small pot of money, it was about $40 million that was actually kind of owned by the Treasury Department. And so they liked, they liked this, uh, this, this program in, in part for that reason. But what we would do is we would uh, agree to give a debt relief to a developing country if they would use the money that we gave in debt relief to, um, to, uh, to do various things that would protect their tropical forests. And so 
it was a joint initiative uh, with the State Department and the Treasury Department. So the State Department was more on the monitoring of you know, what they were actually doing on the ground. And we were on the, um, and so the State Department sort of owned the program once I launched it, once the Treasury Department kind of launched it. But we would, um, you know, we would have these, these countries and they would apply and they would have put proposals together about how they were going to pr protect their rainforest. Our debt was um, kind of scored internally. And, um, you know, the interesting thing about that actually was that the, the less likely they were to repay the debt, the lower the score and the more and the cheaper the relief you could give, right? So there was a it was a, there was a funny sort of almost misplaced incentives in a way that you had to be you know quite careful about uh, when you were doing it. But it was a it was a nice it was a nice program for sure. And we would partner with some of the big uh, big um, you know the Nature Conservancy and and the like to to, to do this. Interesting. I kind of think of I mean, how much has it has that kind of mechanism caught on and like was it i mean have you seen kind of growth in that over the past 20 years or has it become kind of out of favor it seems like something with cop and just ending that you know would be you know a mechanism that more and more countries um at least in the west would would uh um, be interested in yeah i think it absolutely has and it and it's a version of a social impact bond in a certain way right where a where an ngo will sometimes undertake the um the obligation of sort of helping these countries do these things and executing on the thing. And so there's, I think it's it's fair to say that it definitely was a precursor to all kinds of financial innovation along these lines. And it's gotten more, you know, more complicated, more maybe more sophisticated is a better word since then. But um, yeah, absolutely. I would say it was a, an important early mover in, in just trying to come up with creative ways for, to, you know, to come up with a, a bit of a win-win. Yeah, I, um, I spent a few years in the Dominican Republic and it was just so blatantly clear that the kind of long-term impacts of, of debt um, on the Haitian side versus on the Dominican side, um, the debt to France and kind of like the importance of um, figuring out kind of interesting mechanisms like this. So then you spent eight years in um, at Milken um, and then, um, which, which in and of itself must've been a very interesting time um, being able to kind of meet uh, you know, leaders and influencers from around the world, but, but how, how did you get into crypto? Like what was the journey to Algorand? Uh, yeah. So I have, I think kind of a unique story because I was doing, and this was when I was at, so I had finished with the NASDAQ and JP Morgan and I was at, at the Milken Institute and I was running uh, the center for financial markets. So it was a uh, economic policy, financial markets policy shop in DC. And I uh, had a, a joint initiative with the National Institute for the Press to try to bring to the press the topical financial markets issues of the day and to kind of just explain to them what was going on, just really like a finance, so make them smarter about the issues as opposed to trying to, you know, give a view necessarily or, you know, to lobby them per se, but just to just to kind of try to, some of this stuff is complicated and um, so I was trying to explain it. So. It was actually a request from the National Institute for the Press saying, hey, you know, we've got a lot of requests, like what is this Bitcoin thing? And you, and, and part of my strategy was to get, so if we were talking, talking about like GSE reform, for example, the reform of Fannie and Freddie after the housing crisis, I would bring somebody that worked on that all the time and I would do some intro remarks and maybe do an interview or whatever. But I looked around and I'm like, I don't know anybody that knows anything about Bitcoin. <laughs> this is in 2013, so I guess I better, and I was curious. And so I better learn about it myself. And um, my house was being renovated, like deep renovation. And so I was living in this one bedroom and I just kind of locked myself in this one bedroom. I just, I can picture it so clearly. And I was just, you know, ordering pizzas and listening to these podcasts and just trying to figure out. And I wanted to figure out like, how does this proof of work mechanism actually work, right? And what is this and why is it so? And I, you know, well and truly uh, fell in love, uh, I will say, you know, and um I started realizing this is a kind of thing that um, was an answer. And it, I, it was not ex exactly an answer. And it was a little early and it's not exactly fit for purpose, but Bitcoin, I mean, but it, but it, I, I saw it, that it, it was an evolution of the other things that I was working on at the Milken Institute in terms of, you know, when I was at the Milken Institute, it was very much, I was working on the importance of capital markets vis-a-vis -vis the banking system. 
And it's very important in developing countries that you can get capital markets going because sometimes, especially in smaller countries, like five guys, the heads of the five banks make all the credit allocation decisions in the country, right? And, you know, it's the old joke that you, you give, you know, it's like the three, six, three, six, four joke. I think it goes, you, you know, you pay 3% on deposits, you get 6% buying government bonds and you hit the golf course by 4 PM. Right. And uh, banking in developing countries is very profitable. And my, my, this is a little bit of a tangent, but, but, but my working model for prosperity in the country and economic growth is that if household savers have good outlets for their savings, meaning that they can you know, give those savings to entrepreneurs in efficient ways, you know, moderated, of course, through capital markets, those entrepreneurs then take those, those savings and they put them to productive uses and they grow and they hire more people and they pay those people better. And then the households have more savings. And this is the virtuous cycle that brings growth. It's, a, it's very much a private sector led model of growth for me. So I was already thinking about capital markets issues and trying to think about how they could be more inclusive and get access to capital for small business and, and medium-sized businesses as well. Um, and then crypto just seemed to me, and it does still seem to me as a natural extension of that. But you went from these kind of very hierarchical structures, right? The US government and JP Morgan and NASDAQ, and to a certain extent, I mean, maybe not as much Milken, um, um, to uh, you know, to Algorand that prides itself on decentralization. And so why, why Algorand? So I, you know, as I said, in 2013, I, you know, got interested in crypto and I, um, and just funny things started happening. Like that made me realize there's a there there. I, I wrote an article, a long form article, like 4,000 word article about how Bitcoin works and what the proof of work looked like. And, and this article was down, to everybody's surprise was downloaded like a lot at the Milken Institute. And then I, you're always fighting for the best room at the Milken Institute Global Conference. And, and uh, I didn't get the best room. Like, what is this Bitcoin thing? But it was the most downloaded panel that year in 2014, I think it was. So, and then it just cut, kept getting, you know, more and more that I would dip into it, but I was running these other programs. And, and then by last year, I kind of, by DeFi summer, I said, you know, I can't do it anymore on a part-time basis. This is really, you have to kind of pick your... And I had also been at the Milken Institute for eight years at that point. So I, I decided to leave and I just was going to kind of, you know, see what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do something in crypto. And then I was um, headhunted for the board of the uh, Algorand Foundation. And, uh, and so I joined the board and then I was on the board for, you know, three or four months. And then they uh, appointed me as the CEO in January of this year. But I will say um, um, that when you join a board, as you know, uh, you are lending your name and your reputation, and you also have to imagine that you can be helpful to this organization, or else why would you, you know, why would you join? And so I did a fair amount of due diligence on Algorand, on the protocol, before I joined the board. And I had, you know, for the first time since that, you know, eight years that I was following the space, that first time that I had that same feeling that I had when I first came across Bitcoin, that, oh, I get it. This is really now. This is really the real deal. This is really the thing. And so, um, yeah, proud to be so, here. So, again, I don't want to switch gears too much here because, but yeah. you just hit on a kind of a note that I think is really interesting, which is I imagine you've sat on other boards, right? Both for profit and nonprofit. Um, and I sit on the board of the Global Blockchain Business Council. I sit on the board of uh, the advisory board of the UN Capital Development Agency. So, I, I, uh, and I have some other, you know, nonprofit boards uh, as well. So you're just doing nothing over there. You're just kind of hanging out. I have, I have, I have, I have resigned from uh, one, a couple, one that I really enjoyed actually, but um, yeah, there's only so many hours in the day, right? <laughs> but I, get, I think like the, I, sorry, sorry, I just wanted to say uh, good to know. I'll, I'll say hi to Sandra when I'm in Davos next month. For okay, GDP. fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Out. Yep. She's a, she's an amazing woman. I'm very proud to sit on her board. I'm glad you'll be there with her. Um, so the so I think the thing that's interesting about kind of sitting on the board and be interesting to get your perspective is that in a for-profit board, you've got fiduciary responsibility. And a nonprofit board, you're essentially, you know, you can't do anything, right? I mean, it's it's just very, very hard to get anything done. It's 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 I mean, 
Uh, I, don't, I think most nonprofit board members wouldn't say that about the boards that they sit on, but in reality, you're dealing with a situation that just doesn't have the same sort of agency that you have in a, in a private sector company. And it feels like Algorand has a bit of both of that, right? And so what, what was different about sitting on the board of a organization that um, is managing, you know, a treasury that doesn't have, that isn't being managed in kind of the same way as a traditional nonprofit. Um, it doesn't have the same sort of fiduciary responsibility as a for-profit. Like what were some of the things that surprised you? Well, one thing that is nice about, uh, was not, you know, was nice about being on the Algorand Foundation board is that typically on nonprofit boards, part of your role is also to fundraise. So, uh, you know, the first thing I noticed was that nobody was making me fundraise. <laughs> that was, you know, that, that was, that was pretty nice, but you're right. We do you know, we have um, a fiduciary responsibility to the community. And, you know, maybe it's not exactly defined in the same way, but the Algorand Foundation, the money that the algos that it holds, it holds on behalf of the community. And so it needs to act responsibly with that money on behalf of the community. They are our shareholders, right? And so um, you take we take that very seriously at the foundation and, and as board members as well. And as you know, one of the great things about crypto is that it's a very transparent kind of place, right? So you you publish transparency reports about what you're up to. Everything on the blockchain, as you know, by its nature, is transparent. Um, and so it's um, you 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 have that duty, and you are of course reminded of that duty by the by the community. Interesting. So, so walk us through Algorand and what's different about Algorand for people on the on the podcast that don't have a lot of exposure to it. So the the so Silvio Macaulay is the founder and inventor of Algorand. He is a famous cryptographer. He is a tenured professor at MIT, 20 years. He won the Turing Award, which is like the Nobel Prize in computer science, for a couple of things that the crypto ecosystem has used, and in particular, uh, verifiable random functions and zero knowledge proofs. These are these are his inventions or co-inventions, and they are used kind of throughout the ecosystem. Um, and he did not have the idea, though, to attach money. It was really, you know, he was a cryptographer. And Satoshi Nakamoto had the idea to attach cryptography to money. I think that was one of his, one of the important ways in which he was uh, uh, the, the forefront leader of the space. Um, but Silvio was watching this space develop, I think, and he thought to himself, you know, I could probably build a better one of those. And so he uh, was immediately able to raise, uh, when he sort of had this notion and he was able to raise some money and um, he went live in 2019 with, a crackerjack team of uh, cryptographers, computer scientists, engineers, you know, um, systems architects, that kind of thing. And um, the uh, the juice in a blockchain is really all about the consensus mechanism. And what he came up with was a very clever, uh, lightweight, efficient, and scalable consensus mechanism, uh, decentralized uh, and. Um, and that's what sets Algorand apart. And that is what, there's a lot of things that differentiate blockchains, but that's the primary thing that differentiates one blockchain from the other is the consensus mechanism, which I can, of course, describe to you. But let me let me stop there uh, for a minute. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting. Describe it to us like we're five. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, so here's the thing for anybody listening. I think you have a very uh, sophisticated and well-versed audience. But for anybody that is listening to this to kind of learn, like, what the heck is this? Here's the thing about the blockchain and crypto. Here's the, I would argue, the one sentence value proposition that makes it so important. It is the idea that you are writing to one ledger. So the history of innovation in banking has been that bank balance sheets talk to each other in a better way. They, they, the messaging between from one balance sheet, bank balance sheet to another bank balance sheet gets faster, more reliable, more efficient, et cetera. That's kind of what banking innovation has been. Blockchain is fundamentally different than that. It is that everybody writes to the same ledger, all transactions. And so imagine the efficiency of that, right? I, I say that I'm going to pay you, Martin, and immediately you can see on the ledger that you've been paid and my account's been debited and your account's been, been credited. And of course, there's nuance to that, but that's basically what's going on. Now, if you want to have, if you want to operate with that system, there's a couple of very important things. One, 
it's very important that nobody controls that ledger, that not one entity doesn't control that ledger. And so different blockchains have different mechanisms whereby all of the computers that um, hold the ledger, they talk to each other, they agree on the order of transactions of the ledger. And even if some of those computers are evil, the rest of them can override those evil computers and come to an agreement about the ledger and protect the ledger. And if one uh, computer is attacked, the, the ledger sits on all of the other computers at the same time. And so the blockchain is protected in that way. And so the, the, the benefits of a blockchain-based system, I mean, it's a little bit more cumbersome and unwieldy and expensive to, to have it like this versus a one centralized database. But there's a lot of security advantages to not having one database that can be hacked and attacked and 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 that one actor could could you know change the order of you know transactions or do nefarious things to the ledger right this does not happen uh, on a blockchain and so uh, so so that is really for every any five year old that you run across that is the one thing that you want them to understand about cryptos you're all writing to one thing and that's where the efficiency comes from so you can send somebody can send you know it doesn't matter where you are you could be in Nigeria or Singapore and it's the same ledger and immediately it you know it comes. It, 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 it is recorded and transferred because it's not actually really moving at all, right? It's just, it's just a, an entry. So Vitalik Buterin, who, you know, after Satoshi Nakamoto is probably the second most important person in crypto, and he, he invented the Ethereum uh, blockchain. He posed this kind of famous challenge, which was to say that a blockchain cannot be decentralized and secure and scalable at the same time. And it kind of makes sense. And you probably know the trilemma of, of uh, international monetary policy that you, you know, if you want to do one thing, you have to give up one or you know, if you want to, you can do two, but not all three of, of these things. And it makes sense. The more decentralized you are. You brought that up. So, so maybe just tell us what the, the trilemma of uh, monetary policy is so that people don't have to go look it up. Yeah, you can't have um, a fixed exchange rate, an independent monetary policy and free flowing capital flows. So, you know, if you have, uh, and one of those things has to give. And if either one of you could figure out a way the way Silvio has to cut through that trilemma, then you will be famous and 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 uh, you will win Nobel Prizes and be very, very rich, let's say. But Silvio said, you know, I think I can probably come up with a, a blockchain model that um, can be both scalable and decentralized and secure at the same time. And so that is the basis. And he calls that um, a pure proof of stake consensus mechanism. And if you'll allow me, you know, one minute, the, the evolution of these consensus mechanisms is uh, that Bitcoin had a proof of work consensus mechanism. And that means that the computers, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously simplifying, but they compete to, to solve a problem. And whoever solves the problem first uh, is paid in Bitcoin. And that problem that they solve enables them to append the next block to the blockchain. And the trick with this is that the problem has to be hard to solve, but easy to verify. So it takes a lot of work to solve it. And then everybody else can check it with minimal effort. And then uh, they check it and they agree. And the block is appended to the blockchain. Then th there's some problems with that, though. One of which, the most famous of which, is that it is inherently, um, uh, it inherently uses a lot of energy because inherently it's an arms race. You have to work harder and harder to be faster and faster. And you know, you end up spending more and more on specially designed chips and all of that kind of thing to, to, just to solve this problem, you get paid for it. Um, and so people came along and they said, you know, also whoever wins is not really maybe the most vested entity in the blockchain. So what we should reward those that are willing to, you know, put a stake in the ground and 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 be committed to the blockchain and um uh there's many versions of this, but let's just call it broadly a proof of stake consensus mechanism. So those that have the more stake, you know, it seems like they should be the ones that get, you know, the the the, the coin. Um, and this is a very this is environmentally friendly uh, approach, um, but it has a couple of problems. One of which is that the rich get richer, so it's inherently kind of uh, like that. You know, the bigger your stake, the more you the you know, the more you, and also. Uh, the vector of attack is pretty clear. It's like attack that guy with a big stake, you know. So it's not inherently very, very secure. So uh, Silvio uh, came up with a, a consensus mechanism called pure proof of stake, uh, based on this thing that he invented called verifiable random function. And what it is is that for every algo, and it, it happens in uh, 
three stages over a period of now 3.7 seconds. So every 3.7 seconds, another block is appended and it is final. Unlike in other blockchains, it is final after the block is appended. And, and I can go into how that model is different than other models, but just for now. Um, and uh, the fact that you hold an algo means that you run what is called a verifiable random function on your every algo runs its own little function. And I like to think of this as like a little slot machine. So you're all running a little slot machine. If like three pineapples come up, you are out of all of the computers and, and, and all they're called nodes out of all of the nodes, a certain fixed number of them are selected. And then another process says of those that are selected, these have the, the lowest hash function. And these are these, this one's picked and it appends the next block. And then in the third round, it makes sure that there's nothing wrong with the transactions within the block. There's no double spending. There's no kind of nonsense within the actual uh, transaction. So all of these algos, they, they scoop up the transactions and they try to get this, they try to have this uh, random function. They, they are randomly perhaps picked. And so what this gives you is, first of all, it's very secure because nobody knows if they're going to be picked or not. Not even I, even if I win, I will not know until I have won that I won and I, and I, and then um, second of all, it is both scalable and decentralized because you're picking from many, many algos across many, many nodes. So it's decentralized, but only a certain number of pit are picked. So it's not that every node has to participate. So you get the kind of speed and agility um, at the same time. And uh, then they agree through a, uh, a, a protocol called the Byzantine Agreement, which basically means that the majority agree that, yeah, it's good. And then 3.7 seconds later, with finality, you have appended another block to the blockchain. Other blockchains don't work that way. What they do is they, they you like on Bitcoin, for example, you append a block, but it may be that I made a, I tried to double spend my money. I had $10 in my account and I tried to give both of you $10 at the same time. And one of the nodes picked up the $10 that I sent to Martin and the other node picked up the $10 that I sent to Jad. And so I, now only one of those can exist and the, the blocks kind of perpetuate for a little while and then one falls off. And then the blockchain with it, which, is, which has the, the version that has the most work is the one that survives. And in Bitcoin, they say for a certainty, six more blocks need to go by and they're 10 minute blocks. So basically an hour before you're absolutely sure. With Algorand though, you, you run this Byzantine consensus agreement, this, this Byzantine agreement. And after the 3.7 seconds, you are, you are sure, everybody is sure. Cool. So what do you think are the biggest use cases um, for Algorand? Well, we Oh, we lost you there, Stacey. Oh, do, are, you, there, are you? I'm back. Okay. And, um, you know, we are, I think there's a couple of things about us that are pretty unique that maybe lend itself to use cases that maybe other blockchains won't as easily have, one of which is scale. So we are built for scale. We can do 12,000. I'm, I'm sorry, we went from 1,200 this year to now we do 6,000 transactions per second. So Visa does 7,000 transactions per second. They can get you know, at a peak load to something like 30, 35,000 transactions per second. But, you know, we can now do, we have the capacity basically of Visa. So we can scale to these kind of, um, the cool kids call it TradFi, traditional finance, TradFi kind of uh, things. Uh, second of all, we have subpenny pricing. So it's very, very uh, cheap. So we, um, we can, we, um, you can use us for small denominated uh, amounts, right? So NFTs that don't cost, you've seen some of the problems with, you know, Ethereum where you're paying more in gas fees really than you did for the NFT that you wanted to buy kind of thing. So for these micro payments, financial inclusion, these kinds of things that are, um, that can be very small amounts of money, you need to be on a blockchain that can, um, that does it, it's not going to charge you a lot uh, to do that. So these are the yeah. kinds of things. And I mean, I've got a, a a number of kind of cool examples of things that you know people are building on Algorand, but I think you know many 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 attributes are uh, common to many blockchains. But I think these are two of the ways in which we see a niche for ourselves. And of course, we're green, right? So and we've been green, very kind of famously green from the beginning. 
we use the energy of like a small neighborhood and uh, we buy carbon offsets to make sure that we always stay carbon negative. And so uh, entities that care a lot about that have tended to find us, I would say. Okay. One, one application that you mentioned in a kind of a, a podcast you had, I forget which it was on, um, was on escrow payments and how Algorand could be used for escrow payments. Um, and that caught my attention a little bit because um, Jod and I just made an investment into a, uh, a seed stage company that's uh, focused on um, escrow payments for crypto. And so, so can you talk a little bit about that particular application? I don't think there was anyone doing it on Algorand yet, but, but it was something that you talked about and it's proven to be pretty hard for other blockchains to tackle. Will you be moving your investment to Algorand? Will you, be, will you be moving your investment to Algorand? We're, we're there in the process of trying to figure out, um, well, I mean, I will talk with them. Yeah. And, and I think they're, they're trying to, they're, you know, uh, applying to a couple of incubators right now as part of this round. And so we should, yeah. we should touch with them. They're there. I mean, it's an exciting venture. So Plus, like, there's, to... there's also no reason why it shouldn't be cross chain. It should be everywhere. People should have the ability to choose the greenness of Algorand or some other advantage if they're going to Cosmos or Ethereum, what have you. So we should absolutely push them to Algorand. I mean, we believe in a multi-chain world and we actually think it'll be good for us because um, in a purely multi-chain world, I mean, we have a we have rolled out this uh, year, something called state proofs, which I can go into if you want, it's a little technical, that will make uh, bridges uh, much do. safer. Uh, okay, so, um, but we think a purely multi-chain world will be good for us because why wouldn't you settle on Algorand? It happens in 3.7 seconds without any forking and very cheaply. So we think we're going to get a pretty decent, uh, you know, migration of liquidity and activity. If 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 it if we're ever in that state of uh, pure multi-chain world, um, so uh, bridges have been, and you know, if if uh, Terra Luna didn't happen and FTX didn't happen, the big scandal of crypto this year would have been the attack, the hacks of bridges. So this has been happening kind of all year long, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And um, what happens in a bridge is that you need to, if you have two chains and you are going to move tokens from one chain to the other. You need to burn them on chain A to say, look, they can't be used over here and then mint them again on the, the second chain. And a bridge has a consensus mechanism that sort of looks at that and says, yeah, you know, they did mint that over here. They're not double spending and they are now, now we can release them over here. And that instant where um, they are deciding uh, to kind of move them is a potential security risk, right? And um, and so uh, the uh, you know geniuses over at the Algorand protocol, they um, eliminate. You always need a bridge for sort of liquidity and UI purposes and whatnot. But um, they developed something called state proofs, which which uses the Algorand consensus mechanism itself, and it takes a picture of the blockchain, and so then by smart contract you can port over the state of affairs of the blockchain without having to have these like 27 entities in the middle coming to their own consensus. You don't, they don't have to stake, you don't have to worry about them absconding with your, with your, you know, coins. So it's, uh, and something that can be ported in a very lightweight way. Um, and so we rolled that out this year to, to um, great fanfare. And we hope that it will be deployed around the crypto ecosystem. We, it's completely open source. We have no pride of ownership to it. And um, and so that will, you know, this is a bit of our contribution to helping to helping us move to a safer multi-chain world. Yeah. Cool. You talked a little bit about FTX and Luna. Um, and it seems like the other kind of dirty secret of the scandals this year is that they were mostly around centralization, right? You had centralized actors that screwed up. Um, but at the same time, as someone that's coming from kind of a hierarchical world, um, I'm interested to, to understand how decentralization is working within Algorand. And Mike, what's the difference from, from kind of at the protocol layer? You've talked a little bit about how the organization is decentralizing, but like just in terms of operations, it seems like, you know, we have, we talk with a lot of people um, that come from DAOs on the show. And one of the things that becomes clear is that it's actually very hard to decentralize operations at an early stage. And I'm just wondering, like having come from a bit more of a traditional um, or from traditional firms and from working in, in government, like how has the experience gone? Uh, 
Yeah, well, let me, first of all, uh, compliment you on your, I think you really honed in on the issue with what's happened this year. And if, let me just say a, a couple of sentences by way of sort of um, elaborating on that a bit, is that you, you know, if you have a regulated entity, well, you don't have insight, like, you know, Credit Suisse has been, for example, in the news all year long, uh, you know, we don't have a good insight into Credit Suisse, but it is a regulated entity and we trust the regulators and we trust the process that Credit Suisse goes through, right? Um, in a DeFi construct, first of all, the code is typically open source, right? Then there's the blockchain so that you can see things. And then the, the, um, the, the way that it works is through two things. One is smart contract and two is over collateralization. So the combination of smart contracts, meaning a machine executes, you don't have to trust a human being to do what it told you it was going to do. And you're, you always have to provide more collateral than you are borrowing. That combination has meant that throughout all of this shenanigans, starting with you know Terra Luna and the and the um, and rolling kind of through FTX, DeFi has pure DeFi has 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 performed as advertised. They have gone through this unscathed. They smart contracts collateral started to go into freefall. Smart contracts executed. Lenders were made whole. No questions asked. No, can I have a few days to call my broker? You know, no, I need a little more time to sort myself. No, I've been a good client for five years. No, mm -mm. you know, executed and and uh, lenders made hold. Where we get into trouble is this like this we call CFI, centralized finance, this crypto adjacent, which is neither regulated nor is it run by, you know, code is law kind of stuff, right? And this is where all of the, the trouble happened. And I think, the irony of all of this is that crypto came out, pure crypto came out pretty well in this, but it's this kind of middle ground where you're, where you're neither one nor the other that I think where investors are, are getting hurt, right? Um, and so, uh, so when you think about uh, decentralization, uh, you think about it, I think most importantly at the protocol level, um, but you also think about your community, right? And where, decision-making power resides, right? And it's tricky and you have to move. And we especially, you know, we don't like to make mistakes. So, you know, at the, you know, we don't roll things out as quickly as maybe some other protocols like, but we, you know, we've never gone down for one second and we are very, we're, we're careful, you know, we're a careful blockchain, I would say. Um, so, but we are also now embarking. We started when I came, not to suggest that this was my idea. It was already in process, but it, it rolled out uh, in the first quarter of last year, a process whereby we start to devolve decision-making to the community. Now, a very interesting thing also with Algorand, which kind of sets the framework a little bit for this as well, is that the, the, the way that you can participate in consensus on the Algorand blockchain is very lightweight. You can do it with a high-performing uh, laptop. It used to be a Raspberry uh, Pi you could use, but now that now with these like upgrades to you know 6,000 transactions per second, et cetera, so you, you need a nice laptop. But because it's such a little ask, you are not paid to participate in consensus. We are unique in this. Um, and so the way that part of the way that the foundation also um, engages the community is by um, having the community make governance decisions about the protocol. So it's even more important in a way for us than it might be for for it. we're maybe a little bit more committed to it than than other protocols might be. So uh, last year, I would say we went through a series of, of votes to establish the structures under which the community would participate in things. And this coming year, we take, I think, uh, a pretty big step forward actually to, to giving spending decisions and other kinds of decisions to the community. In particular, we will be rolling out our grants program and we will take as a foundation a hands-off approach to giving off grants. So we will organize the, uh, the way in which through DAO structures, the community will be able to um, make, their, uh, make their choices known about who should get grant money from the foundation. And that will be, you know, that's kind of our next step on that. But you're right, like it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, envision some kinds of things like, you know, we have DevRel, I've got, I think, 12 people or 10 people in, in, in developer relations. So helping coders answer questions and, you know, helping, helping 
who's gonna, you know, where, where the devil, you know, you need, you need Devra. <laughs> what I mean? So, so it's like, you know, we don't think that much about it because we're, we're still on the path where there's lots of things that we can still be giving to the community, but you're right. I think the further along you go, the harder, you know, the, the questions are going to be, you know, a little bit more, we're going to have to be thoughtful. Like already we have committees now, you know, DeFi committee, Web3 committee, we were just rolling out a governance committee, all of these, because it's just more and more to bring the, the community involved in, in decision-making. Yeah, so um, I, I want to kind of touch on the centralization aspect, but Jad, maybe you could kind of jump in there. I know, you know, you've spent so much time in DAOs, and so I'm interested to, to have you kind of talk through this a little bit as well. Yeah, definitely. I think um, you're seeing this a lot across the ecosystem. So it, there's no, I, I I like to joke about, you know, when I'm at conferences or what have you, uh, especially if you're not familiar with the Cosmos ecosystem, someone will be like, oh yeah, I'd love to build, I'd love to connect with their like leadership team. And I'm like, there isn't one, <laughs> there's, there's no one to talk to, right? And that I don't necessarily think that's good or bad. It just is an approach to an ecosystem. So I'd love to near, um, I, I'd love to learn a bit more about, you know, you mentioned there's going to be DAOs for this type of stuff. How is Algorand thinking about this? Because I think you have so much to learn from in terms of mistakes that have been made in like the last 24 to 36 months, roughly, where people have been like, oh, it's a bull market. We can just give, you know, so-and-so person a multi-sig and we can fund it and we can just let them do stuff without really tying it back to things like DevRel metrics, developer adoption and stuff like that. So I'd love to hear what you're thinking about what the Algorand Foundation and all the entities involved in that ecosystem are thinking about like, what, where, where do you make new fruitful mistakes with stuff like this? Yeah, I think you're right. There's definitely going to be some second mover advantages there for sure. And right now we're trying to understand, and I saw you do that, the interview, you did a podcast with Cosmos just recently, right? Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I guess I agree. We need to really understand what, you know, what to not do, right? As a, and, and, and what to do. And like I say, we kind of, we try to move deliberately on these things. So, you know, we'll, we'll do this in the same way. Do you feel like the, I don't know. I mean, like, so I, from a philosophical perspective, I really believe in decentralization. I believe in broad-based ownership. I believe in kind of the ideals of the social solidarity economy. But at the same time, like on a day-to-day -day basis, when I read some of this stuff around how much to actually decentralize, how these DAOs actually work, see where it goes going. against everything I've learned in business in terms of decision-making, in terms of, you know, like I think one of the most, so so I'm just kind of interested, like, do you, do you feel those kind of like, the pull of kind of the traditional model on a day-to-day -day basis and, and when trying to lead in this position? Or have you gotten used to kind of a more consensus-based leadership given that you transitioned out of the bank into more of a nonprofit organization? Uh, yeah, you know, when I sometimes I look at you know the California referendums, I think uh I think the California referendum governance models probably not the, the best working model that one could have for, for governance, right? I mean, you, I, I don't live in the state, but I sometimes I watch it and I think, right, they're not, you know, they're not making policy in, you know, as good a way as they could, uh, right? But, I, you know, like I, like I say, I've been in this space for a while and I, um, I, uh, I knew what I was signing up for. And I think sometimes our community, you know, when, when things are not going well, they can be, um, uh, you know, even mean, frankly, you know, and I, I think they hold me personally accountable in a way that is much more immediate than it would be in a kind of a traditional, if I was the CEO of a traditional company, like they, they have something to say and they're very, it's very, it's a very um, close interaction, but mostly you get just a lot of energy and a lot of juice from that, right? you know, that how much people care and how engaged they are and how engaged they are on a day-to-day -day basis and how much work they're willing to do in support of this community and support of this protocol. And, um, you know, net, net, I think it's, it's positive, but you're right. You, you have to, you, you know, you, you want the right decisions to be made, but you also have to always acknowledge that you might not know what the right decision is. Right. And there is something to be said for sure for the wisdom of the crowd, right. That, uh, that, that somehow the majority is, probably going to find its way to, to, to the right answer. But there's all kinds of, you know, technical questions around that. Like who, who's going to do the work? How are they going to be incented to do the work? Right now, the work is at all levels, not particularly onerous. 
the more decentralized it gets, that workload is going to get more onerous. How do we make sure that it's done and done carefully and all, you know, it can make your head hurt, uh, you know, thinking about it, but you know, it's the, it's the path we're on. We're, com we're committed to the path, but I, but you're right to, um, to indicate to me some, you know, some, you know, maybe, uh, not not fully paved roads ahead, right? Yeah, have me back on next year, and I'll I'll give you an update. Yeah, I kind of look at you know I hate I, I don't I don't really hate anything, but uh, you know if I could hate something, I would hate Mark Zuckerberg and like everything he's done over the past thirteen years to society. Uh, but I do think that to a certain extent, if he turns around Facebook, you need a kind of a centralized leadership structure, and you need a command and control structure. Right. And so so I, I don't think that the street, I don't think any institutional investor would allow him to make this pivot to lose $10 billion a year um, if he wasn't completely in control. And so I don't I don't know if he will make the pivot. I don't know if the pivot will be good for society. But I also think that there is something about decisive leadership. And I wonder when you're in crisis, how much that can be solved through community. And I think that's going to get tested over kind of the coming years. And I'd like to think that the wisdom of the crowd works in those situations, but I also think crowds during crisis can be, you know, you know, really uh, brutal. Um, and uh, yeah. and, you know. and rule-based and rule-based policymaking as well. You know, I made this, I, I gave this example of kind of DeFi and, and the and contracts executing automatically, but I did also see this in the, when I looked after the public sector practice at J.P. Morgan during the global financial crisis, and central banks had rules, and large corporates did as well, but they they weren't my clients. I'll just speak from what I saw firsthand. They had rules about when they needed to sell. You know, if an investment grade bond went to non-investment grade bond, then they needed to sell, and they were inadvertently, in many cases, making the situation worse because they had to respond to a rule-based investment framework when good judgment would have. And, and if they were allowed to make that judgment, they would have been able to ride it through a little bit and done potentially less damage to their own balance sheet and maybe to also the environment, right? So you have to be, you know, remember when Mark Zuckerberg had this notion and, you know, shoved this down the investors' throats, there was plenty of voices at the time that said, you know, investors are so short-term, they, you know, they they managed to quarterly earnings. And then finally, you know, now the, the entrepreneur is going to have the freedom to make longer term decisions for, for the basis of the, you know, the, for the good of the company and not have to be to this like short termism, da, 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 da. you know, so either, either model can get you in, in trouble, of course. Right. Yeah. I also, I also worry about kind of the structure that Zuckerberg or more probably Google are under in terms of to the extent that they reach generalizable AI first. Right. And then you have this kind of very, very, centralized structure in place um, with, you know, generative AI that's that's self-perpetuating. Um, so anyways, in, in kind of these last 10 or 15 minutes, it'd be great to kind of hear a little bit about the applications of Algorand to make this tangible for people. Um, and you have some pretty cool projects in place. Um, one is this IP project um, that's happening um, in Nigeria. Can you talk a little bit about Koi Banks and, and what they set up with Nigeria? I thought you would never ask. As a matter of fact, I just happen to have a, a few uh, in my in my head that I might uh, I might be able to talk about. So the um, Ni Nigeria platform, they have not gone live yet, but my understanding is that they're going live pretty quickly, pretty soon. Is a, a platform uh, that the government uh, is, uh, um, I guess, setting up. Well, Koi Banks is setting it up, but it'll be a platform whereby people can upload their intellectual property and then be able to be in a Web three kind of way be able to be paid or to sell their, you know, their patents or their copyrights or whatever. And the idea there is to, again, and this is a very web three idea that you will be able to capture the value that you create in a better way than you do in web two. And you, you know, I've listened to a number of your podcasts, as you know, and I think one of the, you know, one of the themes is this idea that um, you are, you know, in a web two world, a small number of players, you know, own everything, right? And the rest of us are just kind of renting their services and have no skin in the game and no stake and no way to, and, and Web3 is meant to, you know, turn that on its head. And so this is a very good example of, and getting to a much more kind of a Pareto best um, outcome because those creators, hypothetical creators that didn't think that they were going to be able to make money from their creations wouldn't bother to do it in the first place. You know, you end up in a second best world, right? And um, and now you can imagine much more of, if you think about 
sovereign wealth. You also think about human capital wealth of a country. Much more of that now can potentially come to the fore because you're you're making it very transparent and very easy for of them for them to to capture that wealth, right? Um, another kind yeah, of yeah, interesting... it's also it's also super smart for the Nigerian government, right? Because it's a it's going to be on chain, and so they'll be able to tax it, right? And so it's a way it's a way to essentially embed talent within the country as well, as opposed to you know, someone using a system that's not tied to any, you know, sovereign nation or is headquartered in a place where effectively you know, you're you're moving capital um, between different wallets and, you know, no taxes are ever paid. So I think it's it's smart for the Nigerian government as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. You know, another interesting uh, um, uh, uh, project, a couple of, you know, there's sort of four or five that I'll just ping through quickly because I know we're, we're we're coming on the hour. Another project in, in Argentina is called AgroToken. And in AgroToken, you can take, you know, wheat or soy or corn or whatever it is, and you it's geolocated and a token is issued on that basis it, that that takes into account, you know, the moisture level and the rainfall and the quality. And then, and then the uh, Argentinian government has recognized that as the only stable coin that it recognizes in the country, actually. And so uh, AgroToken, you can now uh, farmers, you, you know how the rest of the story goes, right? They can sell those tokens uh, and get solve their liquidity issues up front. They can um, they can smart contract to you know sell the goods using those tokens. There's a kind of it just it, it gives liquidity to the system in a way that um, it's another one of the um, value propositions of Web three, right? And you know yeah, more straight similar to plastics and also very similar to the work you know that Jahad's doing with Cerulean as well. So, um, well, cool. I, I think like the you know, overall, the the work that you're doing is super interesting. I'm, I'm particularly interested to follow your progress, just given that you've come from, you have this really kind of interesting public sector background, going into banking, now going into crypto, um, and working for this kind of decentralized platform while we're all still trying to figure out decentralization. So we definitely want to have you back on in a year. Um, and, uh, you know, if things go well, we'll be able to celebrate your success. If things don't go well, we'll do a deep dive on why decentralization doesn't work. And we should all just go work for... I'm personally super interested to see what the, the foundation and the various entities in the Algorand system, how they, how you folks end up building kind of a polycentric governance structure. So we definitely have to have you on. We're very interested in that. Well, I will tell you, you invited me, I don't know, five weeks ago. Uh, and so I have been listening to, and you don't have that many podcasts, right? You've got sort of 30 or 40 or 50 of these. So I have now listened to many of them. And I think it's a terrific podcast. I really do. I've learned a lot. I've not seen a podcast that is solely focused on these issues and that you you approach them from a very macro and a very micro uh, way at the same time. And it, I think it's you're doing, a, you're doing a great service to the ecosystem. So uh, thank you very much for doing this. Awesome. Stacey, thanks so much thank for joining. So much.